This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show, episode number 32. I'm Kurt Schilling. Played a little baseball for a few years back, way back when. Uh, and he's Bill Graff. Good afternoon, Bill. Hello, Kurt. Looking forward to uh, hearing your uh, your opinion on a bunch of this stuff here. Well, let's start in Toronto. Uh, Anthony Bass, who we talked about last week, is no longer a Blue Jay. After making comments that the LGBTQ plus alphabet community thought were hateful and divisive, even though he was just stating his religious beliefs, which under, well... In this country, the United States, is supposed to be a protect act. He was released uh, a couple days after. I don't know if you remember, Bill, we were talking about the Dodgers and Kershaw and uh, I think Blake Trinan and guys talking. And I said, your ability to talk publicly is directly tied to your batting average and your ERA. Exactly. Yeah, this is exactly that. This guy was in statistically probably the, the 11th or 12th pitcher on the staff, if that. He made it easy for the Blue Jays to look and feel woke and sensitive making a move they probably would have made anyway. If you're going to pop off about stuff, which God bless him for standing up for himself on the first day and shame on him for recanting and apologizing on the second. But uh, he's no longer a Blue Jay. He cleared waivers and he's a free agent now. So anybody could pick him up. I don't mean to put these two in the same category. But if you remember, we were talking about Trevor Bauer. I don't think any team will ever take on that headache again. This is a smaller case, but in this day and age, why would you? Why would you subject your team in double A or triple A or even your big league roster to the BS that's going to come with putting this kid on your team? And that's sad to say for him, but that's what the world we live in now. He's canceled and he wasn't good enough to bypass the canceling. I don't think, I think it's going to be very hard for him. I'd expect him to end up in independent baseball or overseas. Well, he's 35 too. Kurt. Yeah. So I mean, he was nearing the end anyway. But that's the world we live in now. And that's yeah. how um, baseball has joined, unfortunately, joined the ranks of the other sports, trying to appease a crowd who pretty much never goes to the game anyway. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, the Dodgers, who are just inundated with injuries uh, up and down the pitching staff, are enjoying uh, rookie Bobby Miller's debut season on the roster. He is the ninth pitcher since 1901. And I, I keep going back to this. Anytime you're talking about over century old sport and you do something that only nine other people have done in the last 122 years, you're special. Ninth pitcher since 1901 to allow two or fewer runs over his first four starts uh, with a minimum of 20 innings pitch. There are two other Dodgers on the list, including Fernando and Kente Maeda. Let me just offer up a little bit of a comparison. I think Fernando threw three complete games. There might even have been four complete games in that run for him in 1981. He was insane but that's probably about 40 innings for fernando i don't know about maeda but bobby's throwing i think 24 innings something to that effect or 23 innings yeah 24 i think yeah and and i don't want to miss it's a phenomenal thing and this kid's clearly insanely talented 
Uh, and he's a pitcher too, because he's not a 99 guy. He's a pitcher. He's a guy that with, with four pitches who has, um, you listen to his catcher's talk. He's, he's got multiple wipeout pitches. This is impressive, but it's being done. And I, again, I'm trying not to take away from the accomplishment without sounding bitter. And I don't mean it this way. These kids are brought up. Let me just say, when I came to the big leagues, I was, I came to the big leagues with the mentality as a starting pitcher. Those are my nine innings. That's 27 outs. That's my responsibility. Coming out before the ninth meant I didn't finish my job. That's not the case anymore. There's a very different mentality. I can't even imagine what my mentality would have been if I had known my start was 18 outs. It would have changed everything about the way I pitched because now I'm not working that first and second at-bats to get outs uh, in a third and fourth at-bat. I'm only going to face the guy twice. It's completely different mentality, completely different approach, completely different process. But at the same time, he's done... Everything he could do with the innings he's been given. So hats off to Bobby, and hopefully he keeps it up. And and we were talking about Alex Manoa last week and that terrifying feeling of going out there, being afraid to throw strikes, which I felt. The opposite is true, although not to even remotely the same degree. When you're going this good, and as a rookie, I don't know what it's like. I have no idea what he's going through because I don't. my mentality as a rookie was I couldn't even begin to pinpoint what I was thinking about. But as a veteran, when you're going well, there's a feeling of confidence from a, I, I'm prepared, I've done everything I need to do. But there's always that, for me, that fear of failure was always my number one motivator. I was so afraid to fail that I felt, in my opinion, in my mind, I would do anything I could do to make sure it never happened again. And so, you know, it was a very different approach. You, you felt good. You felt confident. But I don't remember ever feeling as good as I did bad and feeling as confident as I did fearful of, of that time when I struggled. That just permeated and carried over. And it, it's I think it's a testament to the, the human mind. And our ability to to make ourselves, we've been conditioned to be glass half empty in many ways. And I think a lot of professional athletes are fearful of the glass not being half full. So be interesting to see how he does as he comes around the league the second time and see starts to see guys because that, that generally tends to adjust some things. We're going to go down a couple levels to Division One college. Everybody knows the, the college World Series and, and all the postseasons getting ready to happen. Uh, in the Super Regional in Texas, Stanford starter Quinn Matthews. They were playing, pretty sure it was a best of three, right? Best of three, they were down one one nothing. He's pitching down one nothing with a season on the line. He throws 156 pitches, and they win. And then Guru, and I'm using air quotes, Guru Keith Law, the last Major League starter to throw 135 or more in one game was Tim Lincecum, 2013 no-hitter. Edwin Jackson... In 2010, did it. Brandon Morrow. Last guy to throw 156 pitches in a game was 1997, Tim Wakefield, who's a knuckleballer. So his 156, for the most part, was kind of like somebody else throwing 62 pitches because the knuckleball wasn't something that that took out of your arm. The last non-knuckleballer to do it was, surprise, surprise, Roger Clemens in 1996. Fans were, were tweeting things like, this is absurd. Somewhere a Tommy John surgeon has bought himself a Rolex. 156. Are they trying to kill him? Uh, let's be clear. Matthews was drafted last year. He's 119th prospect on the uh, Major League Baseball list. A couple things. First off, hats off to the kid for being that that guy, that guy who wants the ball, who wants to be on the mound, who wants to grind and get through it. To the people that, that wonder about this, this is obviously not all-inclusive, but college coaches, for the most part, don't give two craps about the future prospects of a player they have. College baseball is a business, and their job is to win games. Nowadays, you're seeing college coaches move into the pro ranks. You don't move into the pro ranks. You don't get promoted. You don't get a raise if you're not in the regionals, if you're not playing at the College World Series, regardless of what level you're at. Insanely irresponsible thing to do. Insane. Ridiculous. Uh, I don't even know who the manager is. I didn't even look it up because I didn't want to know his name because I didn't want to call him out personally like that. But 
ridiculous, insane, irresponsible. You know, it gets back to what I said earlier in my career. No one is ever going to care more about your career than you. No doctor, no trainer, no coach, nobody, but you you and your family, no one's going to care about your career as much as you. And you have to take control of some things. Part of the manager's job. And, you know, I tend to think that if, if Terry Francona had been, uh, I don't know what the word is, more aware of the surroundings when, when he managed me early in my Phillies career, early in his Phillies career, I don't think he would have abused my arm uh, or and I probably wouldn't have let him abuse my arm. But but that was who I was. And that was what we did. I, I think, Bill, there was a, a stat called pitcher abuse points used a while back. And I I led the, the game by a wide margin over a five year period in Philadelphia. And it cost me cost me some. But there's no chance I'd go back and change any of it. None of it, it made me who I was in many ways mentally, uh, certainly helped me understand the arm physically but i there was you know as i got later in my career when i was with tito i did things that i never did the first time which was you know take myself out of games when the score warranted it or the situation warranted it but the manager's job is to protect his athletes from themselves before they get to the big leagues and even then i think there's some responsibility because that kind of story leads to this one chris sale has a stress reaction in his left scapula and basically what that means is the mri and the imaging shows what's called like a hot spot in a certain area. Uh, could be a stress fracture, could be a lot of things, but a stress reaction in your scapula, in the bone, is a bad thing. Potentially bone bruise sort of thing, whatever. He's out till August. Since he signed with the Sox in 2019, his season ended in on, in August because of left elbow inflammation in 19. and 20, he missed all of the season after Tommy John. Didn't pitch until July of 22 because of a stress fracture in his rib cage on his right side. Came back for two starts and got his hit hit by uh, a line drive and broke his pinky. Then before he could return from the pinky, he broke his right wrist in a bike accident. Five and two with a four, five, eight. The question you pose, Bill, is can the Sox ever rely on sale? No, no. I felt the same way, unfortunately, about Jacob DeGrom before the season. You absolutely cannot give that money to a guy and expect to get, you know, out of over four years, you can't expect to get 120 starts. I don't think Vegas was taking any bets, futures bets on DeGrom's over-under for starts this year because I don't think anybody had a clue. And I think Sale's the same way. And I hate to say that about guys like Chris Sale because I love watching the guy pitch. He's a gamer. He's an ace. He's a, he's a battler. But you're talking about some pretty significant physical problems. But the Red Sox gave him $160 million, knowing full well what they were giving. You know, he was a health, a guy, health concern. Uh, bouncing back and forth from the DL when they did it. So that's the scary part these days is how you're given pitchers that much long-term money. I mean, I get Bryce Harper making all the money he's making and Shohei Otani is about to make, but guys, especially guys with injury history, that's tough to give up that kind of money. Well, the problem is somebody's going to do it. Yeah. You're in a market where somebody's going to do it. In a day and age when you're trying to keep a season ticket base and appease a fan base and draw new fans and win games, you don't want to be the team that said, you know what, DeGrom, nah, we're going to walk away. I mean, you saw it happen with Correa. Right. um, Which will be interesting to see at the end of the year how that all plays out. But it's puzzling. But it's not. And it's also one of the reasons why it's the greatest union on the planet, the players' union in baseball. They stand hard, they stand fast, and they fight and win in labor battles. And they have guaranteed contracts. That's the risk. But I, you know, I have always said before these winters deals where you know you had Bogarts and these guys getting three hundred million dollars. Go back over the last thirty years. You show me how many seven plus year deals, six seven plus year deals that were signed 
that actually were value worth the value they were signed for. Nobody plays seven years at peak value. There's a couple of contracts. Randy Johnson, Arizona was insanely valuable. Maddox in Atlanta. Very few guys, though. It's a sport that breaks your body. And and that's you know, it's one of the reasons why football for so long tried to stay away from guaranteed money because they knew it was inevitable. We're gonna stay on the mound and talk about quick series. Uh Rays and the Rangers, Rangers. play. Rays took two out of three. Shane McClanahan became the first 10-game winner in uh, in baseball. And we're before the All-Star break, so he's having a heck of a month, a heck of a year. Uh, they only play three more games in July. To the grand scheme of things, irrelevant, this series. Other than if they see each other in October, it'll be meaningful for some guy. For I think for the pitchers, probably more than the hitters. Inconsequential in the overall scheme of things. Uh, other than they're the two teams with the best run differential in baseball, they're both trying to pull away from a, a challenging Division, I think the AL East is almost all over 500, close to it. But no, it was a good, I think it was a good, good to see the managers get a feel for the other team. Again, even though I don't think in October it has anything to do with anything, because in October, like we said, you're not going to run your four and five out there. You're going to run your one, two, threes. You're only going to see about a four or five man bullpen. The Rays play the way they play. So from a substitution player perspective, very, very odd that that's who they are. But actually, speaking of the AL East, Bill, I said it for a season. I love the Orioles. By the way, my wife put a futures bet on the Orioles to win the World Series before the season started. That's not out of the question. Absolutely not. Be a stunning thing. I think there's some people in at DraftKings that are getting a little concerned about her prior her futures bet. I want to say it was like 1,800 to 1. Wow. Or even higher. And she put a decent little chunk of money on it. Nice. And I say that for this reason. Gunnar Henderson, I talked about him as a potential rookie of the year guy. Through May, he was hitting a buck 99, which is known as, for those of you I'm dating myself, the Mendoza line, which was something created in the 70s for Pirate shortstop Mario Mendoza, who was a career 199 hitter. So when you're below the Mendoza line, you're hitting below 200. Since he's at the Mendoza line in the nine games, he's hit 409 with four homers, 10 RBIs. The O's have won four straight. Uh, are still five and a half back of the race, but they're firmly entrenched in the postseason run. We're now at a time, I'd say at the end of May, but we're in June. You're real. If you're if you're in first place, if you're a winning record, if you have a good run differential, and their run differentials in the 40s, 50s, nothing decisive, but meaningful enough to, to that they're uh, they're legit. They're in the run, and they they have they need to stay healthy. The problem becomes that a young roster tends to whittle more so than a veteran roster when you get into the dog days. August and September, these these kids are experiencing things they've never experienced before. Uh, Travel-wise is a huge piece of this. Workload-wise, for sure. Uh, and then you have te- – these guys are going to get to that. You know, Nowadays, I think there's a metric that all teams say, okay, listen, you're starting pitching. This kid threw a total of 154 innings next year, last year. So we're not going to let him go above 175. Well, what happens to the quote the Steven Strasburg plan when – 175 shows up late September. One of the guys that got you to the postseason is now no longer part of your rotation? Or do you cut him back early in September to save those innings for the end of the year? I don't think that does a thing. These are all high leverage innings. These are all max effort innings for these kids because they're in a postseason. You know, the bigger thing, too, is position players. It takes a lot of wisdom and experience to understand. I think the Major League Baseball schedule is the hardest schedule in sports. 162 games in 181 days, actually about 200 games in 225 days, counting spring training, uh, your body just breaks down. 
It just does, unless you're cheating and using steroids. And they called them the dog days for a reason because I, I can remember, and it was di- very different for me as a pitcher, but I, I can remember in August being on the turf in St. Louis when it was 155 degrees. And I'm on the mound and it's a cool 138. Thinking about these guys are playing a night game. It's 105 on the turf and they got a 1 p.m. game the next day. And they're facing the ace of the stat. You know, you're facing a Wainwright the next day or a Carpenter. Then you go to Atlanta. Same thing. You're, you know, oh my God, it was 120 degrees. We're exhausted. Oh, wait, we got Schmoltz tomorrow. And then Maddox and Glavin. It's the most challenging schedule, but that's going to be something to watch to see how they're managed. And if there is a, like in hockey, playoff hockey, if there's a workload management done as the season goes on, especially for the pitchers, because you remember the Strasburg thing, Bill, when, you know, oh, yeah. it got to the finish line and had a chance to win a World Series and they shut him down. So the team you were competing with wasn't the team you got there with. And, and he that, was by far their best pitcher at that time. Yes. Oh, and not even close. Not close. Well, he was their MVP when they won it. So, you know, that tells you anything. Anyway. Uh, by the way, uh, if you didn't see it, his last home run, Gunnar Henderson's, is worth going and watching. It okay. went 462 feet. And I think that underestimated how far it went. He hit that ball so hard. If he's coming around, well, he's clearly coming bat, around. That's another bat right. in that lineup. And, and th- if you guys think about this, if you think about Jordan Walker in St. Louis, he did what a lot of rookies do. Right. Coming out of a good spring training, April is hot. And all of a sudden the league, the second time around the league says, OK, we understand his weaknesses. And and it, he has easily exploitable weaknesses. He goes back to AAA. And he's talented enough to fix him and come back. Rarely is the time that. Well, I'll give you a great example. Dustin Pedroia. At the end of April, I think Dustin Pedroia was hitting 100 or 150. And I can remember Tito being like, you know, Theo, what the hell is this guy in the big leagues for? And by the end of May, he was Tito's adopted son. And they played cribbage all day, every day together. They were inseparable because he went on a tear. Very rarely do you see the young player go that first time around the league, struggle, and then figure it out, or in some senses, figure himself out. That's the sign of a different player. This kid struggled his first time around the league, started to make adjustments, I'm sure, on himself against pitching, and now he's become the hitter they think they drafted. I agree. I think he's the pitcher they drafted. And here's the thing as a pitcher about this 462-foot blah, blah, blah. It's a home run. It's one. Doesn't count the same as the guy that hits it off the pesky pole. So don't give me the measurements. I don't like them. I don't care about them. I gave up enough, well over 460 feet, to know that it just counts as one home run. So screw that. All right. But ESPN loves it. So that's cool. Top fives. I had the distinct pleasure over a 20 plus year career of throwing to some great big league catchers, uh, some offensive uh, and defensive, some defensive. Uh, defense was was what I cared about. Defense was what I focused on with my catchers. And I found when I had a young catcher who I knew didn't focus on the defensive part of the game, he didn't catch me anymore. That was, And I had earned the right to kind of pick and choose who was going to catch me during the season because I liked consistency and I wanted effort from my catchers. Now, I'm going to leave people off because I, I left Jim Fergosi off my manager list of all people, which still to this day mind boggles me because he was one of my favorite. But there was a clear number one for me. I played with guys that probably physically were better catchers, throwers. Didn't play with a better pitch blocker. Uh, and never anybody close to the game caller that Jason Veritek was. And the, the guys below him were phenomenal. Hall of Fame caliber qualities in some of their tools. But Jason was the complete package in every possible way. And I say that in an embarrassingly physical way. Because I locked her next to him and saw him naked many times. And it was struggle for me to do that. So uh, anyway... Jason Veritek, Darren Dalton, uh, enormous influence in my career. And I don't know that he tried to be. I think he just was a very good thrower, 
a uh, guy who went through enormous amounts of injury uh, to become the leader on that 1993 team and have the career he had before he got his ring in Florida. Uh, rest in peace, Dutch. By the way, I, I think I might have told you this. Dalton Varsho of Toronto. Yeah, was named after him. Gary idolized Darren for all the right reasons. And that is why. And then uh, Bubba Hollins, that's Dutch's nickname. Dave Hollins' son was named there after Darren. Bubba Hollins. So anyway, Darren Dalton, my boy who's right... Uh, was already made one of my lists as the uh, so so actually Dalton was on my leadership list. Uh, Damian Miller is right up there. I think very underrated thrower, probably as good as anybody I threw with to as a pitch blocker, and became a very good game caller. Invested in the game, somebody I enjoyed and to this day still enjoy. I told him uh, I texted him and told him I was gonna I was gonna put Paul Laduca and AJ Pierzynski on this list before him, and he sent me a <laughs> bunch of crying emojis. Uh, and how offended he was, which is the exact opposite of where I'd have those guys. But anyway, a guy who who uh, who was never an everyday guy, but a guy who I think was might have been up there with my best throwers was Rod Barajas. Good dude. Good hit a home run in the World Series. Great guy. Very good tools. I think Rod and his wife, who is still the same wife he had when he married, I think they have like 35 kids now. Every week on Facebook, I'm seeing a new Barajas born. So I don't know. He's got some sort of like football roster going there. Uh, he's been in and out of baseball coaching since then, but great guy. Probably maybe one of the better all-around athletes I ever threw to was Mike Lieberthal, uh, a very, uh, I think a first or second round pick with the Phillies who who caught me for an, a very ext- long period of time. He caught both my 300 strikeout seasons in, in Philadelphia. Good guy, good kid, young kid, very gifted, talented, very offensively gifted. He was solid. He was, he was any, I think he was like the perfect build as a catcher too. That's probably my top five. And then right on the cusp of top five, Doug Mirabelli, again, uh, one of my favorite people of all time, I thought was a a fantastic uh, catcher. He was Wakefield's guy. He caught Wakefield because he's the only guy on the planet that could catch the knuckleball as, and it's just, what a gift, what a, what a physical gift. But if you go back and look at 04, him uh, and Todd Pratt, who's another guy on my list, uh, my my other list, in 93 and in 04, go look at our backup catcher stats and how good those two guys were off the bench. An incredibly challenging thing to do, but an absolute must because your catcher needs days off during a season. And Pratt and Mirabelli had monster seasons. I've known, I knew Todd from double uh, A with the Red Sox and uh, we've been lifelong friends. Actually, I don't know if you met fans might remember Todd Pratt as the guy who hit the walk off in 99 against Arizona in the playoffs. The probably the best thrower I ever played with and maybe one of the best of all time, Benito Santiago. Great guy. Didn't give two hoots about calling the game, but phenomenal physical gifts could throw i was a guy who worked hard to be quick to the plate i would like to know what my runner uh cost stealing and and stolen base numbers were with benito behind the plate because people didn't run on me normally and with him behind the plate they didn't run at all he was a stud and then uh chris hoyles who uh chris probably not one of the better throwers but absolutely perfected i think his release to be as good as he could be uh a thinker I thought, anyway, uh, a good thinker. He was my roommate in the minor leagues. We were friends early in the minor leagues, and he came up. He was more of a bat than a catcher, but he's solid catcher. But I think he was a good game manager, really good game manager, and he, and he knew how to take care of his pitchers. And I'm going to give a shout-out to two guys who no one probably has heard of outside of their local areas, Tim McGee and Lem Pilkington, two guys I had in rookie ball and low A ball. Timmy was kind of Crash Davis in that sense. He was an older guy in low A ball. 
incredibly helpful in the minor leagues with me. Lem, Lem was a college player that I met in Elmira in rookie ball. Neither one of them made it to the big leagues, but both of them were were solid people, good catchers who is your minor league instructors dream of having guys that are like that, that are that are leaders for young pitching. And again, I'm going to forget people. I did. I know I did. Um, and I'm going to bring their names up later. And I apologize. It's not personal. It's just I'm old. But there you go. My favorite catchers. Um, really good list. I think next week, let's our next show. Let's do let's do the five guys who didn't have the careers I thought they would have. Oh, I like that. Right, guys who I thought were going to be Hall of Famers, and that doesn't mean they didn't have good careers. But guys who I thought were going to be superstars and ended up for health reasons or whatever not being that guy. I like that. Yeah, and I can tell you one name that'll be on it: Junior Spivey. Junior Spivey. I thought Junior Spivey was going to be a Hall of Fame second baseman. He had injuries uh, and all those things, but he had the makeup and all the things to be a superstar. And he was a very good player. But I think his career physically, I think he he was hurt, not for lack of effort uh, or talent. I think just forces intervene. And uh, but what a what a phenomenally gifted man and a great guy too. Still uh, still. To this day, I'm in touch with Junior, and his son is a Division One college football player, just recruited and signed as a freshman. Uh, he was highly recruited out of Arizona. So I will catch you guys on Friday. Outkick.com, guys. Outkick.com. Go to the tab on the top right side for shows. Kurt Schilling Baseball shows there, and it's also on Spotify. Billy, you have a good week. Talk to you on Friday.